Hear the word of our God. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, and the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both of the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. So all the work that Solomon, King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, do ask that you would shine the light of uh, understanding upon us as we gaze at your word tonight, that we would uh, see beyond the images of this temple and see uh, your son in heaven itself. And we ask that we would love him more because of it. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Just thinking about how we concluded last week, uh, last week with part of Hebrews 8 about the, the types of the heavenly reality. Uh, you can go and read in Hebrews 8 for, for a review of that, that the things of this earthly temple of Solomon's were just to be types and shadows pointing ahead to the heavenly reality that is found in Christ. That uh, is reflected in the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter seven, uh, chapter 8.6. And I thought I'd just start our sermon off with this this evening. Uh, There we read, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits of it were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. Now that summary includes, of course, what we've just read about Solomon's temple under types that would anticipate Christ. And so it seemed to me that it might be good just uh, today to draw out uh, three of these furnishings that get a special emphasis here as we think of the glorious light of what Christ accomplished in his great work and is still accomplishing for us in his intercessory work. Uh, How is the work of Christ the mediator reflected 
in furniture made of gold at the temple. And I want to highlight three pieces of furniture here uh, found in verses 48 and 49. The altar of gold, the table of gold, and the lampstands of gold. And three, this, this is going to hopefully be very simple for you all, uh, but three uh, very uh, beautiful images that point us ahead to Christ's work on our behalf that we find at the temple. So as they enter in, um, and by the way, I, I did print off a little uh, thing. It looks like the children's coloring page I usually put over there, but uh, it was actually for you adults as much as the children. Through the, a lot of people were talking about the, the pool, uh, pool thing, uh, the, the uh, sea of bra- uh, bronze uh, last week, and, and I threw an image of that on there. Uh, it would have been about the size of a above-ground swimming pool, but unlike ours that you attach a um, an air uh, uh, compressor to and, and inflate it in your yard, this was all of bronze, so a little more impressive than our above-ground pools. Um, and then uh, it also has uh, the layout of the, the temple precinct uh, on there. I think I put two different charts that kind of show how the temple precinct was set up and would show you where these furniture pieces were in relation to the tabernacle. There's a couple copies over there. You can grab them later. Um, But uh, we have, uh, as they enter into the temple, as they look up, there is the the inner uh, court. Uh, There's the place, the outer court, where the people of God can go. Then there's the area where only the priests can go. And then beyond that, there's the most holy place where only the high priest can go once a year. So bear that in mind that everything inside the temple, once you go past the courtyard, well, none of us would go past the courtyard. Uh, Only the priests would go past the courtyard into the temple itself. And only the high priest once a year passed that section into the Holy of Holies. And so what we're looking at here, these three things, are items which actually the majority of believers would never see. They wouldn't see it with their own eyes. They would walk into the temple, into the courtyard of the temple, and they would see a giant altar where sacrifices were continually being offered up. And they would see the, the sea of... Uh, bronze that we talked about last week there they would see the um uh what i called the giant mop buckets those uh what are they called in the text lavers of water they would see those on either side but when you talk about uh, these three items in 48 and 49 the altar of gold uh the uh, the table of gold and the lampstands these are all in the section which only the priests would see Now, the priests enter in, though, and they see this symbolic emphasis. Uh, They see these three things. And so they would see, when they entered into the temple, the golden altar. And uh, the golden altar has a very simple uh, symbolic point to make to us. And that is, we are heard. The altar declares, we are heard. This altar stood directly in front of the Holy of Holies. So if you envision that temple veil that stood between even the priests 
and the, the Ark of the Covenant and those cherubim that hovered over it, there was that thick veil and that veil directly in front of it has this gold altar. It's the last thing the priest can see before the veil. And this uh, golden altar uh, was not one that was primarily for sin offerings and burnt offerings. We hear altar, that's what we think of. We think you're going to, sl- well, you're going to do the offering, right? You're, you're going to offer up this, this uh, animal to the Lord, but this, this altar actually didn't have that purpose. This was an altar not primarily for sin offerings, um, that would be made day to day. Exodus 30, 1 through 10, show us that only once a year was this altar used in any bloody capacity. Once a year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would do the offering at the main altar outside, but he would take some of the blood of that offering and he would put it on the horns or the corners of this golden altar. So if its purpose is not atonement, if its purpose is not the offering up of blood atonement to the Lord, what is its purpose? Well, we find two clues uh, to this. Rather, Exodus 30, 7 through 9, we're told is for offering incense and spices. We're, We're given two clues in the New Testament, though, as to what the significance of the incense and spices really were. You have the incense and the spices offered up. This is regularly on this altar by uh, priests. And in the New Testament, we have two references to this that help us see the purpose. Luke 1, 8 through 11, we know the Zacharias uh, passage where he goes in to offer, and indeed he's offering incense in that uh, in that situation. He goes in to offer the incense on this specific altar, and when the angel appears to speak to him, we actually read that the angel stood beside the altar. So as Zacharias the priest was looking at the angel, telling him about John's birth, he is looking at the angel standing directly by this altar. But the significant thing is that Luke chapter 1 tells us what was going on outside as he came inside to offer the incense. And we read there that the people were praying because it was the hour for praying and this in connection with the incense. And then the other text in the New Testament that shows us something about this altar is Revelation 8, 3 and 4 where we read, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar and was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So these New Testament texts make clear that the purpose that this altar had in the Old Testament age was that the people would know on this altar, there's an altar where our prayers will ascend to God's throne and we will be heard. 
The priest stands there and he all offers the incense and as surely as that that smoke can get past the veil, so surely the prayers of God's people can ascend into his presence. But remember the Day of Atonement in connection with that. Why are the prayers represented by incense on this altar acceptable to God? How do they make it to the mercy seat of God? Well, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the blood is smeared on the corners of the altar. It's only through the sacrifice of Christ that the prayers of the saints are heard. Um, think Think of what we hear of this in Psalm 141, 1 and 2. It speaks, Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayers be set before you as incense, lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. There are those two things put together. The evening sacrifice for sin and the incense that's on the golden altar. And these two things together tell the psalmist, God's going to hear me. He's going to hear me. Unlike all those idols we read about in the prophets and in the Psalms, the idols, the false gods who have ears and do not hear. Uh, We're going to get to it in Kings, aren't we? The moment when one of God's prophets is able to say, what's wrong with your God? Can't he hear you? Or is he too busy? And here, right here in the temple, God gives the constant reminder to the priests who have the job of assuring the people of this very fact. God hears his people. When they come through the offering of blood, their prayers are now acceptable and can enter where they are not allowed to of themselves, right? Their prayers can enter into the holiest of holies. Well, the the second furniture piece then is the golden lampstands. And if the golden altar tells us that we are heard, or told the Israelites that they were heard, uh, the golden lampstands declare that they have life and light. We're told in verse uh, 49 that there are 10 lampstands on either sides of the inner sanctuary. And so uh, this would have been the light that would have shed in the room where the priests went uh, that had the showbread. Uh, there, there weren't windows. And so you had to have these lights uh, kept uh, well trimmed. The lampstands are therefore clearly serving a very practical purpose. But is that it? Well, no, they they serve not only a practical purpose as one lampstand did at the tabernacle. Uh, And by the way, remember with all of these things, so much of it is is there was the tabernacle and it had a small version and there's the temple and it's just a, it's an expanded version of the same blueprint. Everything's in the same place, the same uh, proportions, but larger proportions. And so with the lampstands, there was one lampstand in the tent of meeting. There are ten of them in the, ta- in the temple itself. I think it was Matthew Henry who writes of that. This tells us 
uh, all this furniture expanding and increasing in size reminds us that God will bring more people into his kingdom and there will be room. It's an interesting thought. Uh, Here's this uh, lampstand similar to the one in Exodus 25 for the tabernacle. Here there are 10 of them. And uh, describing the lampstand in Exodus 25, verse 40, God says, Look and make according to their pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. That, that's significant because it's quoted in Hebrews 8, verse 5. It looks different in our translations usually. Usually, if you compare the two verses, you can see the similarity, but you wouldn't jump to the fact it's the same sentence. But it actually is quoted in Hebrew, and it's our English translations that we, for whatever reason, don't quite translate identically. Uh, But that's significant, because when talking about the lampstands and other furniture, God uh, gives this quote, follow the pattern which I showed you on the mountain, and Hebrews 8 ties that in with the heavenly reality. So even though the lampstands serve a very practical purpose, they light up the temple, the Hebrews 8 would indicate by quoting from the same passage that there's also a symbolic meaning to the lampstands, not just practicality. And it's difficult uh, that the Old Testament doesn't directly tell us what the symbolism is of this lamp, on the other hand, is it that hard? <laughs> it, it's, it's a lampstand. And there's plenty in the New Testament about light. Uh, but it's actually more than just light. It's life and light. And this is seen, the life part of that, in the design of the lampstands themselves. The lampstands are designed to symbolize Trees. If you go and look at the lampstand in Exodus 25, it's designed to look like a tree. I didn't put one of them on that little page for you because you all know what it looks like as far as we can guess because you all can envision a menorah. And as far as Old Testament scholarship can guess, it seems that the menorah is a good approximation of what would have been used here. There is a debate, though, because we can't actually prove this. Even some Jews disagree about this as to whether the description given, which is confusing at best in Exodus, and we're not given the exact blueprint, which Moses had, that they used to make these things, uh, but were the, the arms of the lamp coming out from more than two directions? We think of the menorah, all the lights are lined up in a row, Uh, But when you read Moses' description, it seems that maybe there's a possibility that there were branches coming out in all directions. So that the the original might have looked more like a tree, whereas the menorah, we think of, we can see the the whole tree thing, but it's, you know, it's flat. Whatever the case is, since we don't know for sure what it looked like, it was symbolizing a, a tree with these branches that came out and were covered with these beautiful buds. And the buds were the little lamps with oil that were set on the stands. Uh, But the whole thing was made to look like it was a flowering bud 
coming off of a branch of a tree. And there, So imagine walking into this room, which none of us would have been allowed to do, remember. The priests only. But they come into this room, and all up and down the sides of the room are glowing trees. And we're brought back to something we reflected on last week with the symbolism of the temple. And that is we're brought back to the garden. Back to uh, the beauty of uh, life and trees that are fruitful and a blessing. And not only are we brought back to that, but we are in the temple pointed ahead to the new heavens and the new earth. And perhaps reflect on uh, that verse in Revelation where we read that in the new heaven and the new earth, the river flows out and on each side of the river stand the tree of life, each giving its fruit in its season. A, a very interesting verse because the tree of life, singular, is referred to as if there are many trees of life, like a, a whole type of tree that is now growing on both sides of the river and all bringing forth 12 different fruits, one per month every year. And astonish it. But what does that all symbolize? Symbolizes life and fruitfulness and, and what we need for a, a beautiful life. And here, right in the temple itself, is this imagery uh, through these, these beautiful uh, lampstands. So there is life symbolized, and then, of course, there is also the obvious. There's light symbolized. The light from all these branches combined, glowing continually. There were priests whose jobs were to keep these things trimmed and full so that they wouldn't go out. Uh, there, there's a good probability that when um, Samuel was a young man, he was having to do that duty. That uh, there's, There are many who believe that when he's, he's spoken to by God, he's sleeping in this area so that he can keep the lamps trimmed through the night. Uh, but that, that's something you can go and research more on your own. Uh, but here we have life and light symbolized in the temple. They approach God coming into the light. As Psalm 27, 1 declares, The Lord is my light and my salvation. And in John 1, of course, which we con considered briefly this morning, we have that expanded upon that Christ himself is the light, the light. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So in the temple, you had even something as simple, although ornate, as the lighting was pointing ahead to Christ in this constant life-giving light. And then the third piece of furniture is the golden table. And if in the altar we are reminded that, or they were reminded, that they were heard by God, and in the lampstands they're reminded that they have life and light from God, here in the golden table, they are reminded that they have belonging. 
They have belonging. What God promised Abraham, I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is reminded every time the priest sees this table for the showbread. Here's a a big table uh, with 12 loaves for the showbread, or also referred to as the bread of presence. And I, I like that better. Showbread gets to the point that it's just sitting out there so the priests can see it. And uh, symbolically, the, the congregation knows that the bread is there before the Lord, but it's the bread of presence. It represents God with his people. Uh, this uh, is 12 loaves that were made regularly with ingredients contributed by all the people. Nehemiah 10, 32 and 30, 33. I think that's uh, so significant, the way God orchestrates that so that all of his people have to contribute flour and uh, whatever the other ingredients are so that when these loaves are made each week, all his people are represented as being united to him in this fellowship meal with these 12 loaves, again, obviously representing the 12 tribes. Now, these were made by the Levites. The bread was made by the Levites, especially the house of the Kohathites, 1 Chronicles 9, and then given to the priests to put out on the Sabbath day. And the priests ate the bread before the Lord. And then new bread was put out. So when that happens, on the Sabbath day, the priests ate the bread of God on behalf of all the people of God and in the presence of God. They ate, they ate on the Lord's day, the bread of the Lord on behalf of the people of the Lord and in the presence of the Lord. Now, this table with 12 loaves, um, with 12 loaves, obviously doesn't only speak of all of God's people contributing. It's got a more important message, and that is there is sufficient for all God's people. All of God's people find what they need, their provision, from their good The Old Testament didn't use this phrase, but their good father or their their sovereign Lord would provide sufficient for each tribe. Additionally, it's important to note that the table wasn't flat topped. This was something I didn't pick up on in my own reading or didn't really pay attention to it, but it's not just a flat topped table. We actually read in Exodus 25, 25, that there's a rim around the entire, every side of it. There's a rim on this table, a lip, as it were, to keep anything from falling off. And I hadn't really paid attention to that. It's just a detail. But Danny Hyde talks about this in his, um, I think it's a Ligonier series, on the, the furniture of the temple. And uh, he talks about this and I think makes a good argument that the whole point of that rim around the table with uh, the no ability for the loaf to roll off the table represents the fact that 
God's people will not fall away. The true believer is preserved, will not be lost. You can go and read John 10 as Christ reflects on this. God preserves his people. And Danny Hyde then encourages us to think that God's preservation of his people is the doctrine that that upholds the perseverance of the saints. When we talk about the perseverance of the saints, that they will not fall away, it's not a moment for us to puff out our chests in pride. The saints, I'm a saint, I will never fall away. Uh, like, Like Peter, Lord, though all others do this, not I. The perseverance of the saints is not that doctrine. The perseverance of the saints only stands because of the preservation of the saints by God. And there at the table with the showbread, God is saying, I will not lose my people. They will not fall away. I will hold them secure. And as we take all of these thoughts and all of this imagery, bread and belonging, we realize that this table speaks of relationship and communion, and all of this should be very easy to see as it comes over into the New Testament. This table, perhaps we could say this table represents a single word, Emmanuel, God with his people in fellowship in union, but not just in union, in communion. Do you understand the distinction between union and communion? Union is, uh, is the unbreakable covenant relationship between God and his people. And communion is the sweetness of fellowship we have in that union. So sometimes our sin keeps us from having the experience of the, the communion side of it. Uh, from it being a sweet fellowship, but the union will never be taken away. In the same way that in a marriage, the the marriage is a union, and, uh, uh, well, getting in a fight might lead to lack of communion in the, in the marriage tonight. There might be a lack of fellowship. There might be that tension. But that doesn't change the fact that there is a legal bond that hasn't, been severed by that fight. The fellowship might not be there, but the union is still there. Obviously, in our sinful world, as Christ says, because of the stubbornness of our hearts and the uh, sin in our hearts, we, we have that severance as well. But praise God, our God will not let his people go. So there's the union, and then there's the, the fellowship around the table of the Lord. And I don't need to insult you by emphasizing the New Testament parallel. Because of all of these, this is the, the most paralleled in terms of symbolism for us. We don't have lights and menorahs in our place of worship. Well, we have lights. But we don't have them in this intricate way because the reality has come. Christ in the flesh. We have no sacrament of light in the New Testament church. And we don't have a sacrament of altar because the prayers of the saints 
that that represented uh, go directly through Christ. There's no need for symbolism. But Christ himself gives us continued symbolism of the table and the bread. And although there's nuanced difference, of course, there is the essential same emphasis. Union, communion, relationship, provision, what we need, belonging from him. One exciting thing, though, is that the transition from Old to New Testament removes all earthly mediators. What do I mean by that? Well, if the priests only ate the bread and they went and ate that bread every Sabbath day to represent you, but in the New Testament, all of you adults except two this morning, I administered the bread directly to. You didn't sit there knowing that I was hiding behind a curtain somewhere, eating bread, representing you. You got the bread as well. That's a transition from the showbread to the New Testament age. A similar thing that's even more directly connected to communion is in the Old Testament. The language that Christ actually quotes about communion itself at the Lord's Supper is that event when he... Uh, when Moses sprinkled the blood of the covenant on the people and said, this is the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And then he and the elders snuck up on the edge of Mount Sinai and sat down and had a meal and they ate and they drank and they saw God. They didn't die. But they represented the people, didn't they? They had this feast with God. The people below saying, wow, that's really great. The elders got to experience fellowship with God today on my behalf. But in the New Testament age, that's not how it works. This communion with God and his people is even more powerfully emphasized in the New Testament. Well, I think all of these things are um, easily applied in your, maybe not easily applied, but you, you draw the connection with these images uh, because... Well, none of you are new to these things. Um, I was going to read, though, uh, John 17 this evening to conclude and encourage you to think of life and light and union and communion and being heard. But I'm not going to read the whole thing because I think I spent more time talking about one or two points than I'd planned. So I'm going to read part of it, though, and encourage you this week to read John 17, because I, I think in a lot of ways, all of these points that these three uh, pieces of furniture in the temple represent and point us to, we find a beautiful application and fulfillment in John 17 as Christ prays for us. We find the life and the light that he gives. We find union with him and with God the Father and the security then that we're heard. So I'll jump around a bit in, in John 17 in concluding then. Our Savior prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. This is eternal life, 
that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They are yours. You have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you gave to me. Uh, Dropping down. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them and that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Light, life, communion, and therefore... Because we are in him, we are heard. Let's pray.